I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 17 for May of 2017. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about genre shows you may have missed out on for one reason or another. And our show topics are going to include American Gods on Stars, which began its run on April 30th, and Lucifer, which started the back half of its second season on Fox on May 1st. And our interview today will be with a show from the vault, Fringe. We'll be talking to Lance Reddick and Seth Gable about that show and some of their new projects. And of course, Fringe probably isn't one of the shows that you may have missed out on. I, I hope not anyway. But we will be talking about some shows that you may have missed out on. They're a little bit more obscure. We're following a theme here, Dave, I guess. Last month, we talked about shows we missed. And this month, we're talking about shows our listeners may have missed. And then we're even going to be carrying it into the next month as well with uh, shows that deserve a rewatch, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and again, to be fair, some of the shows we're going to talk about tonight, one of us may have missed, but the other one didn't. So Yeah, sort of similar to last month. And we're on a nostalgia kick, I guess you could say. And also, of course, have our regular show topics at the same time. Right. And what makes it especially difficult, as we've said many times, there's so much good genre fare out there now that to go back and rewatch something or watch something old for the first time, it takes a big commitment. Yeah, there's so much good new stuff out there that it's hard to make time for the stuff that is on Netflix or even maybe even more difficult to find than that. But fortunately, uh, some of the shows we're going to be talking about, including Fringe from our interview segment, as well as one of the shows I'll be bringing up in our discussion topic, are featured on Go90 which is this new Verizon service that allows you to stream for free on your device. It is a device specific way of watching a show and they have shows that are in the vault and it kind of prompted this discussion because we talked about last month, Babylon five was one of the shows you and I both missed out on and Babylon five is on go 90 as something that you can go back. And that's not something that you could find very easily. That's the problem with even some of the shows we'll be talking about, Dave, is that where do you find some of these really obscure old shows? Yeah, because the Star Trek franchise doesn't generally give stuff away for free. So, <laughs> Yeah. But before we get too far into it, for those who need to avoid spoilers by skipping certain segments, here are the time codes for today's topics. Shows you missed. 319. American Gods. 2820. Lucifer. 3844 Fringe Interviews 4907 But let's talk about some of these shows that maybe people missed that we heard about from other people 
uh, in some cases. And also, if you do run across one of the items that Dave or I bring up that you feel like, hey, that's not that obscure. Well, that just means you're a cool geek and you get it. (laughs) Exactly. So let me start with mine. Uh, This is one that I have to give a shout out to Kevin Batchelder, who gets a lot of shout outs on our podcast. Yes, he does. He deserves it. And in this case, he introduced me to a South African sci-fi show called Charlie Jade. And so now you're thinking, South African? (laughs) How's that going to be something I'm going to be interested in? But you wouldn't be able to distinguish it really, honestly, from any other English speaking nation's sci-fi, whether it be Canada, the UK or Australia or New Zealand or any of the other English speaking continents that we've gotten a lot of good sci-fi from. Right. I mean, outside of the accents, it looks like any other show. And isn't the main character who's played by Jeffrey Pierce, doesn't he just have an American accent? He does. I recall. Yeah. Yeah. And Jeffrey Pierce, uh, you may have seen him on Tomorrow People for the brief run that that show had, but he's this great lead actor in the show that basically ran for one season. It was 21 episodes in 2005, but it was kind of a one and done. They did separate it into two parts, so you could kind of treat it like two 10 and 11 episode seasons. But for all intents and purposes, it was very short, but it's so unique and different. It actually follows three parallel universes the Alphaverse, the Betaverse, and the Gammaverse. And I kind of liken it a little bit to Fringe in that respect, which has the blue and the red verse. But they have these alternate realities, one of which is a very rigid class-based dystopia, which is where Charlie Jade, who is a detective, originates. And then you've got Betaverse, which is our world, and Gammaverse, which is an idealized world where careful resource management has kind of kept things more green and beautiful, and Alphaverse, which has kind of done the opposite, is trying to exploit a wormhole to get to this other resource-rich Gammaverse and steal their goods for their own purposes. And a terrorist attack against the wormhole is what gets this whole show started. And it's just so much fun to watch Charlie Jade, who gets booted from his alpha verse into our beta verse. And it's kind of interesting. Just even that, that the main universe isn't even our own. We're the second one. (laughs) Right. And you know, we, we talked a lot about multiverses, but it just seems that anytime that concept is tackled, it's like fringe one universe, a second universe, and that's it. And as you said, Charlie Jade, gives us three or does it? Yeah. There's actually later episodes that introduce a primitive world. Uh, and also one in which these mysterious men in gray suits come and become part of this conspiracy that Charlie Jade is trying to unravel, figure out what's going on, but it does conclude a season long arc. So it is worth watching. If you want to go into the vault and find it, it, does have a cliffhanger of sorts for Charlie Jade and the fate that is visited upon him and where he would have ended up had there been another season. But it does have a nice self-contained story that warrants checking this out. And especially, I always like saying, if it's a show that has a self-contained story, it's worth going back, even though you know it's only one or two seasons. And Charlie Jade is one of them. Yeah. So my first show that I'm going to talk about is Odyssey 5, which aired in 2002, like Charlie Jade, it was only one season, 19 episodes, and this one appeared on Showtime. We've got astronauts on a shuttle mission that goes awry 
and they find themselves five years in the past and that there's this omniscient being who they really don't know anything about him, her, it, what, you know, whatever <laughs> it is that seems to be controlling things. And what we learn is that this being who, who is known as the seeker is trying to prevent worlds like earth from destroying themselves. And so it's just simply another in a long line of interventions that he's been involved in. And he seems to always fail. So he looks at this opportunity now on earth as a chance to get it right. So he's like an overseer of sorts. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a, a reasonable way to look at it, but, but he is this omniscient being certainly some theological Ideas are brought up from time to time. I mean, he is a godlike figure, but Peter Weller plays the commander of the team, and you might know him from Buckaroo Banzai across the fifth dimension. And interestingly, other than his son, with whom he has some issues, and that's an interesting dynamic in the show as it is, you know, these people have gone back five years and they're living this five year period over again, but knowing what they know. And of course they can't tell anybody. And it's like the whole, uh, yeah, well, I'm a time traveler. Oh, okay. <laughs> that explains it. So, so of course he can't do that. But the other interesting thing is that none of these five are really friends. I mean, they're thrown together. They understand they're thrown together. And it's, it's almost a reluctancy that they have to do this because the fate of the earth is at stake. Yeah. So, you know, like a lot of time travel shows trying to prevent a future cataclysm, well, you know, things that they do, it, it quickly seems as if that might hasten whatever this apocalypse is going to be. And sometimes it might make things worse in the short term. And that's part of the beauty of the show is that they really don't know and they become burdened with this knowledge. And, you know, they often disagree, of course, what to do about things. But again, that's, I think, the draw to the show. So, I mean, it certainly is time travel. It, it's kind of, on the one hand, it's something we've seen before, go back in time, prevent this destruction of the earth. But there are some differences. Now, in terms of production values, it's 2002. And even though it was on Showtime, it, it looks a little bit dated, but not too bad. You know, you and I have talked about Star Trek The Next Generation, how dated it actually looks visually. So Odyssey 5 is not, not too bad. It's still, I think, worth checking out. Yeah, and Peter Weller actually always will be RoboCop to me, no matter how old he gets. <laughs> and, of course, he was on Sons of Anarchy as well. But, yeah, great premise and of course it should be mentioned that i haven't seen any of the shows that you have on your list dave as i look at it here <laughs> well since you brought up robocop i have to say it what thank you for your cooperation <laughs> but speaking of time travel my next one actually my next two are both time travel shows that should come as no surprise for people who know me but terminator the sarah connor chronicles is a show that i think a lot of people missed and didn't come back to only because they knew that it was on fox they knew that it was unfinished, but I certainly didn't even clue into it when it was on the air. I didn't come to it until much later. Is that true for you as well? Oh, Dave? Absolutely. And it's funny because obviously you and I podcasted about it in between seasons of our Liberated Continuum podcast. Right. Even though it was already off the air. Sure. <laughs> but 
we hadn't started podcasting until 2012, and this was on the air in 2008 and 2009. And really, to a certain extent, you can't entirely be blamed, but it was somewhat a victim of the writer's strike because its first season was only nine episodes. But in that sense, it's watchable, just as the first two shows that we've mentioned, because they're only, what, that makes 31 episodes total, 22 in season two and nine in season one. So in that sense, that makes it cool. It does follow the events of the second movie and completely ignores Terminator 3 and beyond, (laughs) even though Terminator 3 did predate Sarah Connor Chronicles. But everyone's feeling safe initially after the events of the second movie. They've gotten rid of the technology that was supposedly going to cause Skynet. But here we are back in this show. A T-888 has come after John Connor and they have to move again. The interesting premise for me is that they start off in 1999 to relate somewhat to the movies. And then they jump in time to 2007 to avoid the Terminator that's coming after them. And in essence, bring it up to date to the current time. So I thought that was a neat little trick that kind of set it apart. And uh, the other thing that sets it apart is of course, Summer Glau, who plays the Terminator sent to protect John Connor. Very similar thematically, but very different in terms of the relationship, perhaps because Cameron is female and quite hot, (laughs) but you know, that actually helps with the building of a relationship, I think between John Connor and Cameron, as she's called. Right. And it is again, one of those situations where the artificial intelligence, it seems as if she's trying to learn to be human. Not that she necessarily wants to be human, but rather to better protect John. And I think that would have been explored had the show continued. As it was, we really just got to know that the Terminator robot had taken on the personality of a freedom fighter named Allison Young, and that personality was manifesting itself as she was protecting John. And there was a big question as to whether or not that made her sentient or real or whatever you want to say about sentient artificial intelligence. But that was something that was not in the movies. And then the other thing was, of course, adding a law enforcement professional in the form of FBI agent James Ellison, which really changed the dynamic considerably and positively. I mean, that character was great, especially as it took a while for him to come on board with what was really happening. All right, we'll get to the good part here. What's that? Well, I mean, I think any Terminator fan (laughs) immediately is going to say, dude, it's not Linda Hamilton. Right. How can it possibly be Sarah Connor Chronicles and not include the kick-ass performance of Linda Hamilton? And I think that's what people thought. And I certainly did when it was being advertised on Fox. I was like, they can't do it. Well, Lena Headey in the pre-Game of Thrones days, (laughs) she really knocked it out of the park as Sarah Connor in the title role. And you should watch this show for her alone, let alone Summer Glau and some of the other actors in the show. So it's just a really great story. You can watch it beginning to end, even with the cliffhangers that are at the end of season two and still feel satisfied. In fact, I think you might even feel more satisfied than someone who had to experience the pain of cancellation because you go into it knowing that. 
So, All right. Well, my second show aired again one season, this time only 13 episodes during 2002-2003 on the WB, which was the precursor to the CW. And this show is called Birds of Prey. And I found this show when, when I was podcasting about Lost Girl with Wayne and we were in between seasons and we were trying to figure out what to do. So I go to IMDb and start looking for other shows that our actresses or actors may have been in. And Rachel Scarston turned up in Birds of Prey. So here, here's the premise. After the death of Catwoman at the hands of the Joker, Batman is, is essentially so distraught that he leaves New Gotham City unprotected. So three young women take up the mantle. We've got Barbara Gordon, daughter of Commissioner Gordon, played by Dina Meyer, and she plays Oracle, a.k.a. Batgirl. And the interesting thing here is that she's confined to a wheelchair, also a victim of the Joker and and his rage against Batman. So she kind of got caught in the crossfire. Helena Kyle, a.k.a. Huntress, played by Ashley Scott, we learn is the daughter of Batman and Catwoman. And the cool thing about her is she turns out to be half metahuman. So this whole idea of metahumans is sort of at the forefront of Birds of Prey, is that you've got metahumans, not unlike Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So you could almost say that or the Flash, for that matter, yeah, that this was sort of a precursor to what Marvel was going to do with their inhumans and that some of them take their power and, and and try to just stay hidden. Some use their power for evil and some try to use it for good. So, you know, these three young women are trying to protect New Gotham City. Now, the third I mentioned, Rachel Scarston, plays Dinah Lance, who is also a metahuman. But all she knows is, you know, weird stuff seems to happen to me. I I see things. (laughs) And she basically goes on this journey of self-discovery and ends up in New Gotham City. Turns out her mother is Black Canary. So there are all these comic book hero tie-ins, which is cool. And I guess I really feel like it was ahead of its time regarding comic heroes in serialized format on television. I mean, compelling characters, compelling storylines. And, you know, one of the things that I really liked is that it looked at the human side of being a superhero and and that what does it really mean to put your life on the line? Because they certainly can be killed and what do they give up One in many cases they give up a personal life and all the sacrifices they make to protect new Gotham city all the while each of them on this journey of self-discovery, especially for the two younger ones, but it's a wonderful show. If you're into comic book heroes, if you like shows like the flash and arrow, it's really worth checking out. And you know, it does have somewhat of a resolution at the end, That's sort of the thing with the comic book world is that they just the good ones just keep going on and on and on. Yes, exactly right. But I do think you're right. It was ahead of its time. Had that been released now with the success of The Flash and and especially because The Flash introduced metahumans back into the television world, it would work well as a CW show that had crossover potential. Right. Oh, and the one the one. Detail, I did want to get in there. If if you don't know Dina Meyer, you probably know her from Starship Troopers, which is one of those (laughs) movies that, 
you know, it got trashed by the critics. I love it. Everybody I talk to loves it. And I watch it every time it's on. I don't care at what point it's in. I watch it. All right. Well, I'm going to actually have to dig into the vault for that one. I think what I'll do here is I'll put in the show notes and on our blog post for Den of Geek for this podcast episode, I'll put where you can find these if they are available on one of the streaming services, just so you can hunt them down if you feel uh, you want to try that. And certainly Continuum is very much available on some of the streaming services, and that's the show I'm going to be talking about. Now, if you're a longtime listener of Mike and Dave podcasts, you might be very surprised that I would say Continuum would be on a list of shows you have missed, because probably a lot of you haven't. But people in general, I think, maybe did miss Continuum just because of the way that it came about at the beginning or even before the time travel trend that seems to be very, very prevalent right now. It ran for four seasons, really three and a half seasons. The fourth season was quite short from 2012 to 2015. And because it was a Canadian import rather than an American production, I think it gets lost. And I think that might be true for lost girl as well. That could have just as easily been on our list because it didn't get the publicity machine behind it, maybe, Dave, do you think? Well, I think that's a lot of it. But the fact that it aired in Canada first and then the delay yeah. to when it aired in the U.S. was so great. I, I believe Continuum was a year. Well, it certainly was several months because we were able to podcast season one twice. <laughs> oh, good point. In our burgeoning days as podcasters when we had time for that stuff. <laughs> but like 12 Monkeys, which is my other favorite time travel show... It did lose a lot of viewers, I think, because of its time travel complexities. It's not the same as Timeless or, you know, Legends of Tomorrow, where they don't go too in-depth into paradoxes and causality and things like that, whereas Continuum certainly did that. Now, it never really got to see a lot of what changes to the timeline happened, except in season four, we certainly got a season finale, a series finale that had the big payoff, but because it follows people who left the future in 2077 and came back to our time, 2012, 2013, they were really working blind on trying to avoid this dystopia future that they came from. And it wasn't just the main character, Kira Cameron, who was coming back to try and capture some criminals who had escaped to the past, but the criminals themselves were trying to change the future so that people had more freedom. So there was this great disconnect of good or bad. And you were never sure who was who, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Because the criminals are clearly using terrorist techniques to achieve a better future. Whereas the cop Kira Cameron, who was pursuing them was definitely trying to be a moralistic person and capture the bad guys, but she was protecting a future that was quite bad. Right. And, you know, it was interesting because along the way, the terrorists, if you will, uh, liberate, they really stuck to what they intended to do, you know, that they felt they were right in coming back to try to change the future and avoid this corporate controlled 2077 Whereas for Kira, it took a while for her to realize what the truth really was, which, again, was one of the beauties of that show, watching her evolve and 
the people she's trying to catch looking at her and nodding. See, we told you. Exactly. (laughs) And of course, it did do the time travel thing before a lot of the time travel shows came out. It also did the corporate controlled future before shows like Dark Matter and Incorporated showed up on the Sci-Fi Network. So if you want to see the trailblazer of time travel shows and corporate world futures, then you got to give Continuum a try. It's four seasons, so it's a little bit more, but they're short seasons. 10, 13, 13, and 6, right? Yes. So it's very doable. Right. And I, I don't think there's a show Mike and I could recommend more. That's that's exactly right. That's our first love. Yes. All right. Uh, the final show we're going to talk about is one of my favorites, and, and that is Dark Angel, which ran for two seasons from 2000 to 2002. And these were long seasons, 22 and 23, for a total of 45 episodes. And it aired on Fox. And Dark Angel, along with Firefly, one of those shows that helped get Fox the bad name it has. And Sarah Connor Chronicles. <laughs> and the Sarah Connor Chronicles. And I, I think the point to understand here is that Dark Angel was actually renewed for a third season. And then when they came back on Monday, oh, yeah, you know what? We changed our mind. Oh, God. <laughs> All right. So that said, it continues to be one of the few true cyberpunk shows that has ever aired on television. Which is surprising. Which is surprising because it's such a cool concept. And in this show, we follow a genetically engineered super soldier and her brothers and sisters after they escape from a government facility. So on one level, we've seen the whole super soldier concept many, many times from, you know, X-Files, Fringe. But here it's different because on the one level, it is a traditional search for identity story, but it also explores concepts and theories like eugenics, cloning, and then prejudice. Again, just like we see with Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the prejudice against inhumans, we certainly see the government drumming up hatred against these, uh, in some cases, super soldiers, in some cases, just other, they didn't only create good-looking (laughs) Young men and young women like Jensen Ackles and Jessica Alba. And this was really her breakthrough role. But they also created other beings for other purposes. For instance, they created this super soldier that could live in the desert. They created one that could live underwater. So some of these creatures really turned out to be freakish. And then, of course, there were the missteps, which there are all sorts of literal monsters running about Seattle. Now, the other cool thing is that it's Seattle after an apocalypse. The Pulse, which was a an electromagnetic pulse bomb that basically knocks out all computers, digital records, so that now the U.S. has essentially devolved into a third world nation. And, you know, to, to see the, this underbelly of society, which we usually don't see. And, and of course, that's what uh, cyberpunk really is all about. It's really fascinating. And there was clearly more story to tell at the end of season two. I mean, the finale provides a somewhat satisfying ending. There's been a number of tie-in novels that have carried on the tradition. But uh, Jessica Alba's character, Max, works with Logan Kale, 
also known as Eyes Only, who is this cyber journalist fighting against the repressive government that's taken control after the pulse. And of course, we recognize him as Michael Weatherly, who played in NCIS, Tony Dinozo. So it's a great show. I, again, I, I can't recommend it more highly, especially for the cyberpunk feel, if nothing else. Oh, yeah. There should be more cyberpunk out there. And I think more steampunk, too, honestly. I don't know why those haven't been explored more often. But is there any steampunk? No, not really. There are steampunk elements, including actually the forthcoming season three of 12 Monkeys, if you're interested in a little bit of steampunk at the very beginning of that one. But it's something that needs to be explored. I think there are definitely avenues that they haven't tapped into yet. Now I did mention that I will be putting in where these shows are available. If they are available to stream or download, as opposed to just getting the DVD. But I should mention, cause I forgot to that Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles is one of the shows on go 90 along with Babylon five and fringe. So there's a tie in across a couple of our different topics because of go 90. So definitely check that one out on that service. If you're inclined but we do have some current shows to talk about as well. And I'll go ahead and start off with mine, Dave. American Gods is just starting out its run. And if you haven't checked out American Gods, you've got to check it out. It's on Stars. It just started on April 30th. The second episode ran last night as we're recording this. And it's only eight episodes. So it's definitely something that you can uh, check up on and see if it's it's for you. It's just like you know Steampunk and Cyberpunk a very unique approach to genre that we don't see very often. It stars Ricky Whittle as shadow moon. Ricky Whittle of course was Lincoln on the hundred. If you're familiar with that show. And then Ian McShane turns in a wonderful performance as Mr. Wednesday. And there are plenty of other notable appearances that show up later in the season, including Orlando Jones, who just showed up in episode two as did Jillian Anderson and Crispin Glover is going to be in there. Kristen Chenoweth, Cloris Leachman was in episode two. I mean, these are people you don't normally see together in one cast, <laughs> but it's based on a series of novels, actually just two novels. If I'm not mistaken, there might be a third one by Neil Gaiman, who's known for personifying metaphysical entities such as gods, as, as we have here in American gods, because he did that in the Sandman comics that gave him his name among comic book readers and beyond because of his personifications of dream and death and destiny in that comic series. So I personally came to American gods as a reader, not of the Sandman comics, but because I had read Piers Anthony's intimations of immortality, which also personified concepts like death and fate and things like that. I thought, oh, well, I read Neil Gaiman's collaboration with Terry Pratchett, Good Omens, which I think is also being made into a show, actually. And so American Gods should be a book that I enjoy, too. And I did. I didn't actually care for the second book, Anansi Boys, but I did really enjoy American Gods as a novel. But how different is this show from the novels in which you have to wait almost the entire book to find out that they even are gods? Well, thank the American gods for that, because my journey was a little more circuitous than yours. Somebody gave me the book or actually loaned me the book. I mean, it's got to be eight years ago, maybe longer. And then when all the buzz 
about it being brought to the small screen, I thought, all right, well, let me check it out. So, you know, I got it out the other day when I knew we were going to be talking about it on this podcast. And I realized that I was 285 pages into it. So I really did give it a chance. But as you said, the pilot episode lays it out there so much more clearly. So, you know, here's a case for me so far that, well, the TV shows a lot better than the book. Yeah, that doesn't always happen. But it is certainly true if you're just wanting to see these gods walking around being twisted into American versions of themselves, because that is the premise of the show. You've got gods are real. They've adapted themselves to society, including coming to America, perhaps from the old world as part of the melting pot of immigration and the slave trade and other things that brought people from other continents to America. And now you've got the old gods and the new gods fighting for dominance in the hearts and the minds of their worshipers, because without worship, in Neil Gaiman's vision of how gods work, they can't exist. Their power is diminished. If they have people believing in them and worshiping them, then they're strong and can affect things around them and, and actually have powers. So the fact that you can actually show this larger view of the world and America's place in the world through these metaphysical beings and basically the elements of culture and religion that define regions of the world. I mean, it really is just a great way to carry across a vision and put an American stamp on it, which is wonderful for storytelling, because of course you do have a very basic plot line going on for Ricky Whittle's character, shadow moon. He's just trying to figure out why he's garnered so much attention from these gods while they're battling it out. And uh, I think another thing that actually fits really well with the TV series is that each episode appears to be opening with a scene of coming to America, I think is what they call it, coming to America vignettes in which we see the arrival of different gods to the new world. And in episode one, we see Odin's arrival and Mr. Wednesday is what he's known as here, played by Ian McShane, but it is Odin for all intents and purposes. And they are the ones that are trying to get Ricky Whittle's character under their wing. And so Mr. Wednesday is trying to coax him along to become his bodyguard, but clearly there's something bigger going on. And uh, I think another thing that really struck me about these coming to America vignettes at the beginning of the episode is that they're so artistic. And in fact, they use violence artistically. And that should come as no surprise when you find out that, this show is brought to you by <laughs> Brian Fuller, who trademarked artistic violence in his show Hannibal. So it really is something that can be viewed at visually appealing as well as narratively appealing. Right. And there really is a visceral quality about that because it's not violence for violence sake. I mean, there, no. there really is a point to it. Right. I mean, we're talking about gods who subsist on violence in some cases, especially Odin, who is a war god. So the premise, of course, does have Shadow Moon coming out of prison, presumably for running con jobs himself. But I believe what we're led to believe that is that Odin is running some kind of long, long con himself or Mr. Wednesday is. And he's been let out early out of prison. Shadow Moon has because his wife has died in an accident. There's some mysterious circumstances surrounding 
a sexually compromising position that his wife was in when she died in a car accident. But we're going to remain a PG podcast. So, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. But we have the Norse gods. In fact, Loki shows up uh, in prison. His name is Loki Lysmith in this version of events. But he works with Shadow Moon for a little while. We've got Egyptian gods, including Mr. Ibis, who is the storyteller who runs the little coming to America vignettes at the beginning of each episode. And Mr. Jackal will presumably come later. That's Thoth and Anubis, the two of them. You've also got Mad Sweeney, who's a leprechaun, whose gold coin we should definitely keep an eye on. Shadow Moon put the leprechaun's gold on his wife's grave. And I think that's definitely going to come into play (laughs) as we saw it sink into the earth in episode one. And the modern gods are here to make a play. They're trying to push out the old gods and who would be the modern gods that Americans worship? Well, technical boy is who shows up in episode one. Jillian Anderson plays the media and she's a big thing that Americans worship, of course. So basically, modern technology, modern transportation, they're trying to take over the hearts and minds of the people. New gods, same as the old gods. (laughs) In essence, that's true. They can't subsist without our worship. But one of the things that shows up in this first couple of episodes that's a side story and is also a side story in the the novels, a very self-contained side plot, is Bilquis, who is a love goddess of sorts. She's the queen of Sheba. And she actually feeds on the worship of her lovers. And in fact, in this modern world, she has to resort to internet dating. In order- when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To get worshipers to basically feed upon. And wow, I don't know what kind of crazy visual effects they used to have Bilquis feed on her on her victims, but they're not even victims. They willingly give themselves up. But we know that certain things are to come. Uh, For those of you who haven't seen the second episode, and I've only seen the first few minutes of it, we do have Anansi coming, the trickster spider god from Africa, played by Orlando Jones. Great, great character and a really great opening scene from him in episode two. We've got Peter Stormare, who people probably know from Fargo and The Big Lebowski, among many other things, plays Cernobog, the amazing Slavic, dark, evil God who likes to smash skulls in. Although again, he's seen better days. The Slavic 
gods are not <laughs> as much in favor in America as they once were. And that's where Cloris Leachman comes in too, as one of the Zoria sisters who helps him out. And later on, we're going to see apparently Crispin Glover playing Mr. World, Jillian Anderson as media. She showed up briefly in this episode and Kristen Chenoweth of wicked fame is showing up as the Germanic goddess Easter, who actually is doing quite well from what I can see in the previews. <laughs> but this exploration of American culture through who or what we worship combined with this unfolding mystery that shadow moon is going through just is a really great way to meld the thematic stuff that's going on with a kind of a little mystery, a conspiracy underlying it to see where uh, shadow moon's character goes. So just a great show that I think is going to be a big thing that genre followers will want to keep an eye on. Yeah, I agree. I'm really pulled in. I can't wait to see episode two. It probably won't be until later in the week, but. All right. What do you got for us? Because you've got an established show to talk about. I do have an established show, and it's a show that I've been trying to preach how great it is to anybody that will listen. And, you know, I guess in keeping with our our theme, you doing American Gods, this show is called Lucifer. It's on Fox on Mondays. Tom Ellis plays Lucifer Morningstar. And yes, he's that Lucifer. <laughs> we're we're deep into metaphysics in this episode. <laughs> yes, we are. Laura German plays Detective Chloe Decker. You may know her from Chicago Fire. Kevin Alejandra is Detective Dan Espinoza, a.k.a. Detective Douche. Is that Lucifer's name for him? <laughs> yeah. And, and you're you're starting to get a sense that, oh, is this a crime drama? Well, yeah, a procedural. it kind of is. It, is. it is a procedural. But like any good genre procedural, there are a lot of other supernatural storylines going on at the same time. Well, we did talk about iZombie last month, which was a procedural in the genre field. So can have good crossovers. Yes. Now, uh, Lucifer's brother, Amenadiel, played by D.B. Woodside. Uh, you may know him from 24, where he was President Wayne Palmer. Mm -hmm. Rachel Harris is a psychiatrist, Dr. Linda Martin. Now, I saw her in a show with Kirstie Alley many years ago called Fat Actress, and she was wonderful as Kirstie Alley's aide in that show. Leslie Ann Brandt plays Mazakine, who is essentially Lucifer's bodyguard. And librarians fans will certainly recognize her as Lamia. And then I'll get to the character edition for season two in a couple of minutes. So number one, it doesn't mock religion. I mean, it really doesn't. And, and it's a different take on arguably the mythology of the character of Lucifer. So here's what we know so far. Growing tired of reigning over hell and feeling a bit neglected by dear old dad. And that's the other interesting thing. He never says the word God. It's always dear old dad or your father or whatever. But fallen angel Lucifer relocates to L.A. and runs a highly successful upscale hedonistic nightclub called Lux. Now, I mentioned he's got his bodyguard Maze with him and he has her cut off his wings which I think we can interpret as a statement that he doesn't plan to return to his former life. So a lot of the show is about him staying here and not returning to oversee hell, which is what dear old dad wants him to do. Well, that, that sounds like a, a good premise for a character to have 
some dilemmas to overcome and conflicts, inner conflicts to struggle with. Well, exactly. And that's the thing. You know, we, we have this idea in our head about the devil. And again, if you're religious, I mean, I'm not trying to change anybody's mind here. It's a TV show. <laughs> this is the premise they've chosen to run with. But Lucifer lives this hedonistic lifestyle until a close friend of his is murdered, which is how he's thrown together and works with LAPD detective Chloe Decker in her investigation. So it's not unlike the way Castle is thrown together in that show. So, I mean, there's tons of shows. The Mentalist is another. You always have the cop with the super powered or mental powered sidekick that is not part of the force, but insinuates themselves into it. (laughs) Right. Now, Lucifer often enters into compacts with individuals, which enables him to ultimately punish them, which does seem to be pretty consistent with his personality. And when you really see the character of Lucifer Morningstar, what he wants to do, what he gains satisfaction from is punishing people that deserve to be punished. So he's got a lot of powers and some of them psychological. One of the things is that he can get people to tell what they truly desire. And one of the great things about the show is it doesn't work on Chloe. So, yes, there is this dynamic between the two of them. Yes, there are shippers out there that want Detective Decker and Lucifer to get together. And while he comes across as this playboy, which he is, it's really frustrating to him that she doesn't fall prey to his charms, which is one of the big plot points that has carried into season two. Now, that really does sound like Castle. (laughs) Yes. Now, he is otherwise immortal, except when he's near her in, in terms of physical proximity. So if somebody shoots him, the bullet just has no effect, except when he's near her. Is that a mystery that follows through? Why is Chloe this way? Why does she have this power? Uh, well, we're getting more uh, more information about that. Okay. So perhaps the most important plot point centers around Lucifer having saved Chloe's life with help from dear old dad, who now requires recompense, and he wants his son to return to reign over hell. But the real issue now has become Lucifer knowing that his path And Chloe's path were preordained, if you will, by dear old dad. He somehow feels that the relationship isn't real. And, you know, he disappears for a while. But what's different in season two is now that he's back, he's got to deal with that. And it's a slow process. But what's really different in season two is that we get a new cast member. Trisha Helfer joins the cast as Lucifer's mother and Yes, it's the Trisha Helfer, you know, and you're thinking like, well, wait a minute. She looks like she's about four years older than Lucifer. Okay, well, whatever. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Right. Now, she, too, has escaped from dear old dad, but it appears she's on Earth to bring Lucifer back to reign over hell. And the great thing about her character is it just vexes him to no end that he has no clue why she's here and what she's really trying to do because he doesn't trust her at all. But she's just a delightful character. I I mean, she's one of the bright points of the show. I mean, certainly Lucifer and Chloe, they are the main characters. But 
Trisha Helfer is just wonderful. I mean, it's a role we've not seen her in. Right. And for those of you who might not remember, Trisha Helfer was six in Battlestar Galactica. And it's been a while since we've seen her in a big genre role. So it's great to see her getting back into it in such a big way. Right. Now, we see the interplay between Lucifer's mother and Maze as one of the show's highlights as this burgeoning relationship between Maze and Chloe, who are now roommates at Chloe's house. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so that is really great. But it's this blending of the light and the dark that remains one of the show's strengths. Now, I mentioned Dr. Martin, who was treating Lucifer as a patient. But he didn't pay her with money. He paid her with sex. Okay. (laughs) And they ended up with a relatively complicated relationship. And at this point, she is the only one who has seen Lucifer in his true form. And of course, she's horrified, doesn't want anything to do. I, I mean, horrified doesn't even quite say what she really feels. But once she deals with that, once lucifer talks to her she continues to see him as a patient in addition to seeing his brother amenadil who's also an angel and maze so is the show light yeah it it definitely is light in a lot of cases and and you know this relationship that she has is certainly one of them is that kind of like the sopranos type Uh, of psychologist i mean sort of (laughs) yeah sort of (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, we get some more clarity on on Lucifer and why he left hell and perhaps how he got there in the first place, because it appears now what we're learning in season two is that he was part of a rebellion against his father. But now, you know, his mother's mentioning a weapon that's so powerful it could turn the tide against his father. But of course, her duplicitous nature doesn't really give him any clarity on what the truth really is we do know that there's a sword and it's here on earth and they supposedly know where it is and it's getting deep. (laughs) Yeah. We'll see what happens, but it truly is a wonderful show. I mean, the acting is great. The characters are great. And I understand people that are deeply religious might find this offensive or at least off putting or or off putting, but it's really not. I mean, it does not, as I said earlier, it doesn't mock religion. At least I don't see that it does. And I have a very close friend that is pretty deeply religious. And this person loves the show is able to see past any of that. Well, that's great. I mean, we, you and I have spoken about Lucifer before, but I don't think you've ever done quite as persuasive a job as you as you did just now in the podcast. So I'm really warming up to this idea. And, and who can turn down Trisha Helfer? Yeah, honestly. <laughs> so I like that she's such a key piece of season two. That's great. Well, I hope that we were convincing in our ways to all the different shows that we're persuading you to check out. I mean, that really is the mission statement of Sci-Fi Fidelity anyway, is to bring attention to shows that deserve your attention. And, uh, We've given you plenty of choices here, many of which you might have already seen, many of some of which you probably weren't aware of. So one of the shows that I think that everyone is aware of, it's in the classic halls of sci-fi, even though it's not that old, and that's Fringe. And our interview segments are going to be with two, yes, two Fringe guests. We've got Lance Reddick, who played Agent Broyles on the show, and Seth Gable, who played Lincoln Lee. And both of them are going to talk with us a little bit here about Fringe, 
which is, as I mentioned, available in its entirety on Go90. And these guys are also talking about some projects that they're currently in that you can check out. So we'll start off with Lance Riddick and go directly into Seth Gable. Let's hear from them. All right. Well, I'm here with a very special guest that we're going to be talking to, but another special guest is going to be hosting this with me, and that's Daryl Darnell of the much-beloved Fringe podcast. And obviously, he's here for a very good reason because of Lance Reddick's history with that show. So welcome, Daryl. Well, thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be joining you for this. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting chat with Lance Reddick because it's been a few years now, but you know his character especially is very fond in our memories of the experience of watching Fringe. He really is. Uh, he's an actor that I have loved for several years. I think my first introduction to him was his appearance on Lost. He had a, a very intriguing yet short-lived character on that show. So when he came to Fringe, I was excited. And his participation, his role on that show, I mean, it, he the show wouldn't have been the same without him. So it's really exciting to get the chance to talk with him about Fringe and some of his other great work today. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get right to it. Let's bring in the subject of this month's interview, Lance Reddick, veteran actor of the small and silver screens, who is perhaps best known to our listeners anyway as Philip Broyles of Fringe, but obviously came to many TV viewers' attention before that with HBO's The Wire. He's been a part of genre favorites like Lost, American Horror Story, and the all-too-short-lived Intelligence, one of my favorite shows, and the time travel video game TV show hybrid that I really enjoyed, Quantum Break. You can currently find him playing Irvin Irving in Amazon's hit series Bosch, which just began its third season on April 21st. And of course, you can relive his part in The Magnificent Fringe on Go90, the streaming service from Verizon. Welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Lance Reddick. Hi, it's good to be here. Now, we were very excited to speak to you today on, on a number of levels, but one is that you're a Baltimore native, and I'm based in Baltimore myself, so... Oh, you are? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're calling you from a suburb of Baltimore, but the fact that you grew up and attended school in Baltimore, did that impact your experience on HBO's The Wire? Uh, not really, uh, except that I was able to do a Baltimore accent. <laughs> um, <laughs> My only experience with the criminal justice system uh, uh, was through my father because he was uh, he was a public defender, but um, I really didn't have any experience with you know with law enforcement until you know I started working on the wire and doing research for the wire. And interestingly enough, the first project that I did with David Simon and Ed Burns, the creators of the wire, was a miniseries called The Corner, about the drug culture. And um, both experiences were those surreal, just being home and shooting those things. Yeah. Well, in my opinion, Fringe is one of those rare TV shows that existed that finished stronger than it started, which was an amazing start, by the way, and it also got to go out on its own terms. So as you look back on the show now, what is your perspective now that you've been away from it for a couple of years? And what do you think its legacy is going to be? I guess... That's interesting. When we first started the show, you know, one of the things that I thought about uh, Fringe was how much it dealt with, uh, even though it was kind of very much an action adventure in a lot of ways, how much it really dealt with family and the way um, X-Files dealt with kind of the individual against the system, trying to uncover and, and stand for the truth. I feel like Battlestar Galactic was so much about, it was really about politics. It was about how do we create a culture that works 
how do we create a society, you know, in the kind of Aristotelian sense from the ground up. But for me, Fringe, more than anything else, once you take away kind of all the time travel and dimension hopping and the scary creatures, it's really about relationships and family. And so uh, I feel like in that way, Fringe is, is unique among sci-fi genre shows that really, you know, kind of changed the sci-fi television. Oh, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now actors uh, usually say that they learn something from each role that they take on, especially those on TV that last several seasons as Fringe did. So, uh, you know, what was some of one of your favorite moments maybe that you learned from or something that viewers who go back on Go90 and maybe watch some of these old seasons of Fringe now that it's available, uh, a favorite moment for Agent Broyles that you experienced on the show? I can't say that there was kind of a before after experience for me in terms of being an actor. But first, first of all, I met one of my best friends in the world on that show, which is uh, Jessica Cole Pruitt. And also, uh, speaking of Jessica, probably my favorite French episode was the episode where her alternate self came to the mainstream timeline yep. um, and then met. And she got closure about her relationship with her father. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, another example of, you know, uh, the show so much about family. Um, and there's one funny thing that happened <laughs> that sticks out in my memory, just as an an- anecdotally. Uh, I think it was the second season. Uh, you know, Walter was always eating weird stuff. <laughs> always, you know, eating yeah. And so I remember um, there was a scene, it was, it was late at night. And it was, I think it was the last scene of the night. And they had found this little store that was hiding this little room that had this typewriter that they later figured out that the typewriter was like sending messages to the other alternate universe. But Walter, as I come into the scene and Walter's there and Peter's there and Walter's pulls out a cookie and starts eating it. <laughs> so Josh Jackson, <laughs> well, we're on a brick uh, setting up for another shot. He said, would it be funny if... <laughs> All the rest of us pulled out cookies for the next shot and started eating them. And so we go through the scene, we get to the end of the scene, Walter pulls out his cookie, and we all pull out cookies and just stare at the typewriter and started eating it. And John Nova <laughs> lost it. Um, he couldn't stop laughing. That's a, that's a great story. I've, I've had the chance to talk with John and uh, Jessica quite a few times. Jessica speaks so lovely of you. She she also has told me about the friendship that you guys developed and some of the, the, the things you guys would do offset. Um, you know, you play these characters that are kind of tough guys. We 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 think of whether it's Matthew Abaddon from Lost, or you are this mysterious yet really tough, uh, imposing character. Of course, Philip Broyles on Fringe, and and your character on Bosch. But you've got a different set of skills, shall we say? You got to sh- show those off a couple of times with with Fringe, with the Brown Betty episode where you got to sing. Uh, LSD was another fun episode where you, you got to do some, some different things. Do you look for roles that kind of f- fit into the more hardline characters, or would you like to do more of the characters that kind of break out of those molds that you typically fall into? Uh, I mean, now I'm to the point where I, I'm always looking for something different. I mean, unless it's just kind of an incredible project. It's just one of those things where in this industry, um, once you get known for something that, that becomes very high profile, people start wanting you to do the same thing over over again. And so that was kind of what happened with, with Broyles and Fringe, because with Fringe, the world was so completely different from The Wire. 
And the guy was such, uh, at least the way he was written in the pilot, he was such an ass that I wanted to explore that character. With Bosch, it was a different thing because it was one of those things where I almost said no, but I, I said yes, partly because it originally was just supposed to be recurring, and secondly because Eric Overmeyer asked me, and Eric and I have history, because he was a, a writer and a producer on The Wire the first season. I mean, season the fourth season. So um, I just really trusted Eric's judgment. So I said yes in that regard. But, you know, now I'm just looking to do very different stuff. I mean, one of the things that um, I'm doing now is I just finished the uh, first season of a new show on Comedy Central called Corporate, where uh, on the one hand, he is a, he's, a <laughs> he's another tough guy, intimidating character because he's, uh, he's a corporate CEO. He's a CEO of a multinational corporation. But on the other hand, it's very, very comedic. So it's much more. I don't know if you've seen the uh, Funny or Die skit that I did called. Yes. Um, Toys <laughs> yes. Yes. I've seen a few of those, yes. Yeah, it's similar to that character, except he's a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> Toys are me. You actually did lead directly into the question I was about to ask you, so that's good about corporate, because we've seen your hilarious appearance on the Eric Andre show. We've seen those funnier or die videos, including... <laughs> including uh, I keep forgetting I did that. <laughs> nice try, IHOP. Things like that. So, <laughs> But so we're very much ready to see Lance Reddick in a comedic role. So tell us a little bit about the role that you're playing. Uh, well, corporate is, uh, ostensibly it's, it's about the two protagonists who are played by the, the head writers and the stars of the show, Jake Weissman and uh, Matt Ingebrigtsen. Uh, and it's about the two guys basically who are kind of cubicle drone kind of guys in this big multinational corporation. But artistically, it's really a satirical exploration of how the way Matt put it to me once when we were at lunch, he said, um, in a game between corporations and everybody else, corporations won. <laughs> they kind of they own us and they kind of run stuff. So it, it's how do we deal on a day-to-day basis kind of living in a world like that? Um, and my character, uh, you know, I, I'm basically the, the head of this multinational corporation called Hampton DeVille. Uh, my name is Christian DeVille. And each episode kind of deals with a different kind of way that corporations run everything in our lives now. So, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, speaking of things we're looking forward to, the new season of Bosch, as we talked about at the top of the our time together, just came out April 21st. Now, your character, Irvin Irving, is an interesting one. And, of course, it shares that law enforcement background with some of your other characters that we've we've talked about here. But supporting Detective Bosch in a very different way than we're used to. So what can you tell us about your character and where he's headed for this new season? Wow, well, so much of where he's headed this season is based on where he ended up last season. In terms of personality type, I think uh, in The Wire, Daniel was, was really a cop's cop. He was on a command track, but he really loved the work. You know what I mean? He loved what it meant to be a police officer at its core, at what it meant to be a detective. Whereas Burroughs is a soldier. He, you know what I mean? He's a soldier in a suit. But Irving is a politician through and through. He loved the game of power. And from the very beginning, the place he's trying to get to is to be chief of police. And then, you know, things happen in the second season that completely kind of derail his personal life. And then ironically, by the, you know, by the end of the second season, he's made the kind of interim chief. So we're at the beginning of the third season with him. You know, his marriage is dissolved. His son is gone. And he's... He's interim chief and he's about to leave. And so he's really at a place where, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And so Irving 
journey in the third season is really about him kind of answering that question. And then, of course, you know, the, the big case in the happens with Bosch ends up dovetailing with Irving because because of how things played out in the second season, you know, Irving really owes Bosch big and Bosch needs his help. Okay. A little tit for tat because yeah. Bosch has owed Irving a few times as well. <laughs> yeah, oh well yeah. <laughs> well thank you so much for talking with us today, Lance Reddick, about Fringe and all your other projects that you've got going on. We really appreciate it. Oh absolutely. Thank you. Next, we're going to talk with Seth Gable, who has been a big part of many of our favorite genre television shows. Even after you saw him as the Vertigo-selling Count on Arrow, or as Cotton Mather on Salem, you were probably like, hey, that's Lincoln from Fringe. He also played Jeremy Darling in Dirty Sexy Money before he was on Fringe, and his latest role is in the currently airing Nat Geo series, Genius, where he's playing Albert Einstein's close friend Michelle Besso. And of course, you can relive his part in The Magnificent Fringe on Go90, the streaming service from Verizon. Welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Seth Gable. Hello, thanks for having me. Now, in doing our research for this interview, we noticed a few interesting things. Of course, you're married to Bryce Dallas Howard, whose episode of Black Mirror actually was discussed in depth on this very podcast, so that was fun. But you also did a short film that she wrote and produced a couple of years ago called Soulmates, also featuring one Theo Howard Gable and Beatrice Howard. Is that like an all-in-the-family thing? Yeah, yeah. We figured since we weren't showing any faces, it's uh, Soulmates, S-O-L-E, so it uh, has to do with the feet, and it's a pretty cool one-minute short story, pretty much encompassing all of life in 60 seconds, uh, and we figured we can get our kids involved too, which is pretty fun. (laughs) It's just the feet, okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you got to check it out. It, it's only one minute long, so it's a pretty fun one. <laughs> Just figured, you know, the Howard family, of course, is big into acting. So now the Gable Howard family is following suit, of course. <laughs> yeah, I'm, we're very curious to see if the kids have the, the itch or the bug at all. I think uh, my son might have a bit of director in and, and my daughter definitely has actress in her. So we'll see <laughs> Well, just a little bit about Fringe, because we can't help but uh, being nostalgic about that show. Now, while they share many of the same personality traits, your character's Lincoln in the red verse is very different from Lincoln in the blue verse. So what was it like to prepare for what are essentially two separate roles? Did you develop a preference for one of them over the other? <laughs> initially, initially, I only um, was in the alt-universe, and so that was the only Lincoln that I had prepared. And I was, I was hoping, once people started meeting their doppelgangers, that Lincoln would have an alt as well. And then we meet FBI agent Lincoln Lee, and he's the polar opposite to the alt-universe Lincoln Lee. Um, I was really excited to do that, and I kind of... I was pitching to them that he would be very different than that Lincoln Lee and that he hadn't found his, his niche yet in the world and hadn't found his courage. And I was really excited to play kind of two sides of the same coin, you know, where there's this really strong, confident guy in the alt universe and then this kind of self-doubting, lonely uh, Lincoln Lee on our side. And uh, I honestly loved both characters. Getting to play each of them, I feel like helped integrate some part of my soul, like just kind of getting to experience the two different sides of, of what it is to, to be a human in the world. And um, my favorite episode is Everything in, in Its Right Place, where the two Lincolns talk about what made them who they are. And um, I love that it really just came down to a choice. Uh, Lincoln tells regular Lincoln that um, 
there was no big event. There was no lucky moment in his life that caused him to feel brave and confident and free and courageous. Uh, it was just him kind of making the choice to do so, which I thought was pretty profound. Now, uh, just considering how things ended up for Lincoln, do you imagine a happy ending for Lincoln Lee with Folivia in the alternate universe? <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, when we shot the season five cameo for them, we had a great scene where uh, we're out to eat with our son, who's, who's growing up and I think going off to college pretty soon. And the two of them are, are very happy. Yeah, they were definitely meant for each other. And uh, that Lincoln is having a great time in the old universe, kind of solving crimes and dealing with whatever it is they deal with over there. <laughs> That's right. Now, uh, some of your other shows, because having played serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer in American Horror Story and Cotton Mather, the man at the center of the Salem Witch Trials on WGN Salem, do you have this uh, longing to play maybe a less intense character? And maybe m maybe Michelle Besso isn't quite as intense because these are super intense folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have a tendency to, to do okay with the very dark roles. Um, I'm not sure why that is. I think it's like <laughs> cathartic for me. I like exploring that side of the human psyche, and it's interesting, like embracing different characters that have obviously very different moral and ethical values than you do. I wouldn't say like, I, I enjoy that, but it, I don't know. It's, as a human, I'm, I'm so curious as to what makes those people tick. And so by getting to play them, um, like Jeffrey Dahmer in particular, doing all the research on him and really trying to get, to have a compassionate understanding of what he did, even though, you know, it doesn't change it from being wrong, you can kind of understand where he was coming from. And that's just always been very fascinating to me. Now, there's an interesting angle for this new role that you're playing, and we should mention that Genius just started. You can still catch up with it. It's just started in late April. So Yeah, the first episode was last week, and then episode two, which I'm on, is tomorrow night. Oh, cool. Depending what you listen to this. Exactly. <laughs> you could still catch it even <laughs> if you're listening to this later. But uh, you're playing Italian physicist Michelle Besso, and it's kind of cool because you're also of Ashkenazi heritage yourself. Oh, yeah. So tell us a little bit about this real-life respected friend and colleague of Einstein and how you came to enact the role. Uh, he's a, a very interesting man. Um, he was Einstein's best friend. They met at Zurich Polytechnic when they were both in college. And I think Bessler would have just gone on to become, you know, a mediocre engineer in his field. But he happened to have Albert Einstein in his class, um, who was a guy who was questioning everything and standing up to the establishment and really rebelling against the status quo. And I think Bessel became really inspired by that and was one of the first people to see Albert Einstein's genius. And he was kind of known for being a deus ex to Einstein and would hand him a book or give him an inspirational idea at just the right moment. Um, what I love about the show genius is you learn that what we think of as Albert Einstein isn't just one person. It's a it's a collection of, of moments, of coincidences, of people that he met in his life that steered him in the right direction. And um, Michael Besso was, was one of those people. Um, Einstein called him the greatest sounding board in Europe. He would always bounce ideas off of him. And uh, later on in life, he would write a letter to Besso's wife telling her that Besso kind of won in terms of if life is a game where you try to do things right, um, Bessel had a, 
a wife and a family and took care of them and had a lot of love in his life and took care of, of those things. And I think Einstein had some regrets about how he treated his family and wished he was a bit more like Besso in that regard. But in doing the piece, I saw Besso as like the almost Jiminy Cricket of Einstein's psyche, if you will, where he's kind of the moral center of the heart and is always trying to steer Einstein to do what's right. But sometimes what's right is difficult when you're trying to, you know, solve the mysteries of the universe. Yeah, well, that's very cool. I, I definitely think that's going to uh, pull a lot of people in, and and I can't wait to see you enable that character. It's really well written. I, I really hope people watch. It's it's a lot of fun. Great, and because you've played all these historical characters that we mentioned, Dahmer and Mather, and now Besso, what kind of research or preparation do you have to do to play historical characters? Do you read some biographies, or what do you do? Yeah, we, we had the Walter Isaacson uh, biography about Einstein, which we were able to read. Um, there's also a great magazine called Nautilus, uh, which started a couple years ago, and they actually just wrote an article about Einstein and Bussell and their relationship, um, and it has great pictures of the two of them together. And so I read a lot about the two of them, but um, to me, the pictures spoke a thousand words, and just kind of seeing them uh, and how comfortable they were in a picture together and, and how much, you know, brotherly love they had for each other and respect for each other. Uh, I found that to be kind of everything I needed. And fortunately, Johnny Flynn, who plays the young Einstein, and Jeffrey Rush, who plays the older Einstein, I mean, perfectly embodied that. And uh, it was a really easy and fun job to do. Well, Seth Gable, we're really looking forward to diving into Go90's replay of all five seasons of Fringe and definitely we'll be tuning into genius on Nat geo. So thank you so much for talking with us today about both of your roles and everything else. All right. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, those were some great stories, especially since I really, you and I, Dave had not made the connection because uh, Seth Gable is in genius, which is produced by Ron Howard, his father-in-law. <laughs> Gee, how did yeah, you get I that know. job? I know. <laughs> But some great insights there into Fringe, and I always like seeing these guys. I, like I mentioned to Lance Reddick, I have seen him in a couple of different things that I've enjoyed. And thank you so much to our guest interviewer, I should mention, Daryl Darnell, who was the host of the original Fringe podcast back when it was on the air, and of course now supervises some of our podcasts that we do outside of Den of Geek. So it was great that he could come and join us for a little guest interview. Yeah. And, and as you said, you know, we're doing agents of shield through Daryl's network, golden spiral media. And, and, you know, you mentioned the fringe podcast. I mean, really that's the podcast that really nailed it for me that I wanted to get into podcasting myself. Yeah. So we really look up to Daryl and we're so uh, glad that he was able to join us for this one. So can't wait to uh, get to some of the shows that are coming this summer because we are in a transition period. We've got a lot of shows on the horizon and already have some interviews lined up for, gosh, the next two months. So we're sitting pretty here at Sci-Fi Fidelity, but we hope you enjoyed this episode. If that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in June, we'll be discussing The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu and another as-yet-undetermined show topic. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we do take suggestions for future topics. Just let us know on social media what you'd like us to talk about. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.